Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Do women have less credibility than men? If a woman says she was sexually and or otherwise assaulted, and a case in point would be a Facebook posting that I received from someone named Val, and it was in response to the hour broadcast we did with Marlene Hope, the retired detective from the Calgary Police Service. She retired last August. And Marlene told us, among other things, that in a meeting with senior officers, she was already a sergeant, one of the senior officers said to her, spread your legs. That's how the meeting began. Do women have less credibility than men? And I asked that because Val's posting to my Facebook page read this way, always the females complaining, or should I say whining, suck it up. That's what she said. Gloria Allred is one of the most famous lawyers anywhere. She's in Los Angeles. She represents women who charge Bill Cosby with sexual assault. She's a human rights lawyer, but she represents a lot of women. She's on the line. We're going to go to her in 30 seconds. I just want to play 30 seconds of what Marlene Hope, the retired detective from Calgary, said was last week. Let's listen. There were instances within the police service where I experienced bullying by people within leadership. And uh, that began for me in 2009, uh, 2010, so after 20 years of service. And it ended, ultimately ended in 2015 when I felt that uh, the forces were against me and uh, for the sake of my health and that of my family, I chose to retire. For the sake of my health? For the sake of my family, I chose to retire. Gloria Allred joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. By the way, she wrote a column with her partner in the law firm for the New York Daily News earlier in the week about Donald Trump. We'll talk about that later. Ms. Allred, thank you for taking the time. It's always, it's almost inevitable that when a woman accuses, and it's happened many times on this program recently, a woman accuses someone in the workplace of sexual harassment, sexual abuse, bullying, and other... Uh, actions that that create a toxic workplace. Another woman will speak negatively about that woman's experience. Is that something that you encounter? And if you do, how do you explain it? Yeah, hi. Thanks very much for inviting me, Roy, and thanks for all the good work you do by helping to provide a voice to these very courageous women who have served their communities uh, in law enforcement or in some other way, and who, for unfortunately, have been uh, victimized uh, by uh, sexism, sexual harassment, uh, even though they have been making an important contribution to their community. Uh, by the way, I don't know if Val is a female or, or a, a male. Does Val identify the gender? Uh, we we th- we think we're quite. We're sure, we're reasonably sure that it's, that it's a female. Okay, so we're not 100% sure, but not either 100%. way, uh, the point is this, that you know, we do need to do a lot more education about what women face in the, in the workplace. And I always think education uh, is, is an important uh, element in all of this. Let's start with the fact that uh, you know, everyone deserves equal employment opportunity. 
and that if a woman uh, or a man is faced with sexual harassment in the workplace, that is a denial of the right to equal employment opportunity because it means they have to run the gauntlet of what are they going to do if they're sexually harassed. Uh, are they going to say no, uh, that the advances or statements or behavior are of a sexual nature are unwelcome? Uh, or are they going to go along with whatever is being requested, either directly or, uh, you know, not so directly? Uh, so it puts them in a no-win situation from the start, uh, because if they go along with it, then uh, then the perpetrator may, who is, uh, you know, may decide, well, you know what, I'm tired of this person, and I'm going to get rid of them. Or if they don't go along with it, then the perpetrator may go into ego shock, either... And, and say, I don't want them in the workplace anymore. Uh, and so that's difficult. It's also extremely difficult for the women who are first, in other words, who are the minority in, in an otherwise male-dominated uh, workforce, which is what law enforcement has traditionally been, where females have not been the majority, as they are in the population, but have been the first. It's always you know, difficult for the first. And they are often faced with many, many barriers, and that's why I have so much admiration for them that when they're able to succeed, they're able to overcome so much, and they open up the pathway for other women, which is extremely important. So um, all I can say is sometimes, you know, people jump to conclusions. They don't know all the facts, and the victim is not able to give them all the facts because she is involved in litigation or she doesn't want to be sued by the perpetrator. Uh, or, uh, you know, she's concerned about how this will affect her career in the future. Uh, so there are many reasons why all of the information cannot be provided to the public, but the public and the court of public opinion, you know, wants to come to a conclusion instantly, even though there's been no trial, there may never may be a trial where they can learn everything that is admissible. Um, and so it's a very difficult situation. There's a lot of victim blaming going on. Here's the thing to remember most of all. There is a power imbalance in the workplace. In other words, sexual harassment usually takes place where a person in power takes advantage of a more vulnerable person, a person who has less power. And after all, you know, in a way it's a captive situation in the workplace where, I mean, the woman really needs her job. She really needs, and for many of them, it's not just a job, it's a career. And she wants to be able to advance. And, you know, she wouldn't even make these allegations if, if, if she could find some other way to avoid making them. Um, so she doesn't want to be placing herself at risk. So I do think that people should not engage in victim blaming and victim shaming and jumping to conclusions about victims. Uh, it's sexist to say someone, a woman, is whining. Um, another way to look at it is maybe she's just asserting her right to be free of sexual harassment, to have a workplace that is free of that, not hostile, because of work, uh, workplace harassment. So let's not jump to judgment. Let's let's at least keep an open mind, uh, you know, at the minimum. Um, or, you know, if you want to go as far as to say let's support the person who's making the allegations, you can do that as well. But I don't think people should might right away, you know, be blaming her and judging her and coming to conclusions which may not be accurate about her. I mean, if this were your daughter, would you want people to start criticizing her from the get-go? Yeah. 
and having a chilling effect on other women asserting claims? I don't think so. Well, we've heard so many, um, so many stories, so many incidents, so many accountings of what's taken place from our guests, and some, some of them are going to join me throughout the hour. Um, do you find that, and I've heard this said, that lawyers, when they're defending, or at least when there's a, when there's a sexual assault case, and if you try not to have women on the jury because women will be more uh, difficult to, to persuade that a man is in fact guilty? Do lawyers prefer to have male jurors? You know, I, I really think it depends on the case and uh, depends on the, the life experience uh, uh, of jurors, and that's, you know, why we are able so to case question by case. jurors or the court is able to question jurors before they are seated and chosen as jurors. So I don't want to get involved in any kind of sexist conclusion here about men can't do this or men can do this and women can't do this. Um, you know, I think it really depends on the person, and that's what's important. But, you know, you mentioned my column, uh, my op-ed piece in right. the New York Daily News this week about sexual Donald Trump and sexual harassment. You know, I, I felt that his, his initial comments... Uh, which you talk about in his article that, uh, you know, his initial comments that if his daughter was sexually harassed, I, quote, I'd like to think she'd find another career or find another company if that was the case, and yeah. quote. Well, I mean, what about women in the military? I mean, can they just, women officers there who are serving their country, uh, can they just leave the military if they're sexually harassed, or should they kind of put up, put out, or get out, or, you know, or, or just shut up? I, I don't think so. Uh, I think we need them to do what they think is best in this situation. I mean, there are laws to protect women, and, um, and, and they, don't, they can continue to stay where they are. They can continue their careers. They can insist that the perpetrators get out or, or curtail their behavior and face consequences. That's the kind of point of view that we should have, and that's what I think Donald Trump has failed to appreciate. As these situations become more public, the ones we've been talking about, you're commenting on, I'll ask you this final question. As these situations become more public, do you get a sense the situations are improving for women, that there's more willingness to say, yeah, I believe this is actually happening. There's far, there's far too much smoke for there not to be fired. Well, let me just say, Roy, that my experience 40 years as a sexual harassment attorney is that the good news you know, the bad news is that sexual harassment is still rampant, it's still severe, it's still pervasive. But the good news is that more and more women know what their rights are, and they're willing to assert their rights. And I think that's what's important. Uh, you know, it's easy to, you know, side with the person who was accused, like a, a, a rich, powerful, famous person or a person in, in, in authority. But the, the person who you've never heard of, the accuser, the victim, you know, we need to keep an open mind about her too. And uh, we want women to assert their rights. Otherwise, what's the point of having rights if they're going to be afraid to assert them? Because people are going to just jump on them and criticize them and try to, you know, try to hurt them. Um, So I I, I think that that's what we need to do. And again, think about it. If we're your daughter, she were victimized, what would you want other people to do or say when she makes that allegation? All right. Ms. Aldred, thank you very much for the time. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So the reason we're doing this segment uh, this hour today is that after last Sunday's hour with Marlene Hope, just recently retired detective, 
at the Calgary Police Service. In came this posting on Facebook from Val, identified herself as Val, always the females complaining, or should I say whining, suck it up. That's not the first time I've seen this kind of comment about the women police officers and firefighters who joined us on this program and talked about what happened to them. And in some cases have been extremely, not extremely, but certainly have been graphic about what happened to them and why they're gone to court and why these cases go forward. The reason I'm, I'm only doing this today because of that Facebook posting. But I believe men have a role to play in the, and, and, and a role uh, to, to assume. And it may be old-fashioned. Some people probably say it's misogynistic, but I believe that I have a responsibility. Here's the word now. Go ahead and challenge me on it. To protect wife, sister, mother, co-worker. Um, when I was about 20 years of age, my girlfriend, who was very attractive, was working as a receptionist at a radio station I'd recently left for a much better job at another station. Another broadcaster at my previous station, and I knew him pretty well, and he knew me, he walked up behind my girlfriend and he unsnapped her bra. And then he called a bunch of guys to come and watch as she walked away from her desk. So she called me in tears and told me what happened. So I called this guy, who he and I had been friendly. I wouldn't say we were friends, but we'd been friendly. And I said to him, look, if you don't tomorrow gather all the same guys around my girlfriend and apologize to her in front of those guys, I'm going to come to the radio station at the end of your air shift, and I'm going to rearrange your priorities. I didn't say priorities. And he knew me, and he knew I'd do it exactly what I told him I'd do. I was 20 years of age, so he gathered all the guys around her reception area, and he apologized for being a you-fill-in-the-blank. Now, there were people over time who've told me that I overreacted. No, that wasn't right what you did, Roy. That was, that was over the top. Why didn't you? Well, you didn't need to uh, embarrass him. You could have just asked him to apologize to her, in, not in front of all those other guys. First of all, it was my decision. Secondly, it was the correct decision. Somebody said to me, why didn't you call the police? Listen, it was 1970. If I'd called the Montreal police and told them that, they would have laughed at me, and they would have told me to go and take care of it myself, yeah. to be a man and take care of it myself. So I did, and my uh, our former would-be sort of part-time friend, he saw me a few years later, and he, he was still uncomfortable talking to me. I think I did the right thing. Marlene Hope retired last August as a detective with the Calgary Police Service. She spent an hour with us last Sunday talking about her experiences and the, what's going on in the Calgary Police Service and uh, that it's a toxic workplace and there's sexual harassment and, and other unwanted activity taking place. She's back with us. Hi, Marlene. Hi, Roy. And uh, Leanne Tessier is a firefighter in uh, Nova Scotia. We talked to Leanne about what happened to her and uh, why she's no longer a firefighter. And uh, that was about three weeks ago. Leanne, hi. Good to have you back with us. Hi, Roy. 
Marlene, when you, this was right after the segment we aired with you, Val sends this this posting, and you actually saw it before I did. You sent me an email. Always the females complaining, or should I say whining, suck it up. What's your reaction to that? Well, two things. Uh, Roy, first, your your last comment. My husband always says, if you embarrass somebody publicly, you better apologize publicly. So, so, I, I, did, so I did the right thing. You did the right thing, according to my husband um, and me. Um, what I would say is, you know, I initially struggled with that comment. And um, as many of the people who you speak to, you hear it all the time, but it always takes a, a bit of a punch to the gut um, when you hear that. And then so I had to sort of step back and ask myself, why would this lady say that? And uh, I had a couple of thoughts, if I could, that kind of came to mind was, based on my experience, again, with the police service, is I've had women supervisors who have been honestly more brutal than some of the men. And it appears that they have to support the cultural norms that they're working in, uh, or else they then become the target. And I think they not only do that, but they also target men. So they're equally, can be equally brutal to men or women. And, um, and again, support the culture that exists, and heaven forbid they don't. So there's really secondary victimization going on because you have people who wish they could stand up and say something. Uh, You have probably supervisors who display this behavior that honestly on a better day uh, in a different environment wouldn't do it. Okay, So. So, so so they become one of the boys, as it were, in order to protect themselves. I, think, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I think that's my experience is, is okay. they, they fail to be able to stand up and say this isn't acceptable. I think it was, like Atoya said, they, they understand it's not right, but to stand up and do it is very difficult. All right, and Leanne, what, what, when you heard the comment, what, what was your immediate response, Leanne? Um, that it's typical. It's usually suck it up, you're too sensitive, or, you know, um, I've had a lot of women say that to me um you know it's it's we've seemed to have adopted this sort of notion i think most some of these women that uh, you show strength by putting up with the bad behavior and it's the other way around you show strength by speaking out against it and so when i often get that kind of comment i've i've said you know if you want to put up with bad behavior and disrespect from some of these adult men that you work with, that's your problem, but I'm going to speak out about it. And it was, um, when you put it that way, they usually don't have any answer for you, any response. So it's, um, but like, um, like most are just saying, there's numerous reasons why women sort of minimize the, the bad behavior in the workplace. We're constantly sort of dodging it, ignoring it, uh, you know, pretending it doesn't exist because there's a lot of pressure when you're entering into these dominated workplaces. You, you know, you want to fit in. You want to be seen as capable. You've got, an, you know, where there's a talked about the power imbalance. We're outnumbered. The boys' club is about, you know, their, their rules and their way of being, and, and this is sort of their their, their, their Space. See, I and had this feeling. I, I had this thought as you as you've been talking, and as Marlene was speaking, and Toya earlier, and Gloria already as well. That if in the work environment, this this activity is taking place, the bullying, the uh, 
the sexual harassment, all the things that we've talked about with you uh, and, and, and other women from the RCMP and, uh, and uh, over the last several years, if this is taking place, if other women in the workplace were to stand up and support you publicly, or at least, at least support you uh, on the spot with the men present, I think it might change the attitude or at least the, um, the willingness uh, of some men to behave the way that you accuse them of behaving that um, I don't want to use the word misbehaving because it's certainly far more serious than that. But from what I hear you saying, Leanne, you don't get support on the job from women who are on the job with you. No. No, you don't. You, you, uh, you don't get support. It, it's, it's rare what you did, but that story back in 1970, it's rare that you did. Really? Yeah, it's, that is so rare. You don't think, wait a minute, you, you, don't, you don't think, hold on. Hold. It's unbelievable. Well, what, just a sec, do, do, you, do you think that... Do you not think that, that a man would step up to protect his wife, his girlfriend, his daughter, his mother, uh, just generically say, hey, it's my job to get in there and protect my my family or my... Uh... Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't know about that. Um, I would say it, it's certainly in the workplace. I haven't seen it. Okay. What about you, uh, Marlene? Is, is it rare? I think it's rare, but not unheard of. And there's definitely men who have, like I said in our show last week, there's definitely men in the police service who, who stand up. In fact, since our show, I did receive emails from guys that said, I would love to come on with you, but it wouldn't hold well for me. And so I think you have to create a culture that is safe. And maybe, like you said, just like we teach our kids, is be somebody who stands up and be the one to point to the bully at the time and say, that's unacceptable. Maybe that starts the shift uh, in the behavior and what's considered acceptable. All right. but it's it's well, really a sensitive issue. I think it's specific to each person whether or not they have the ability at that time to stand up. And and do what should be done. We're yeah. going to have many more opportunities to speak, I know, as these cases go forward, because there are going to be more people coming forward, and there'll be more things said, and there'll be more charges brought forward, and it'll be more and more difficult to keep the lid on it because... Well, we just know this is going to happen. Leanne Tessier, Marlene Hope, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Thanks. Roy. Thanks, yeah. Leanne. Thanks a lot, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The report suggests that Canadian municipal police services do not racially and ethnically sufficiently mirror the diversity of the communities they police. And the report argues there are too many white cops with few exceptions. So I'd like to know what the Canadian Police Association has to say about this particular report. And joining me is Tom Stamatakis. He's the president of the CPA. Tom, thank you very much for the time. I'm sure you're aware of the study of the uh, diversity, or as the study claims, or the report claims, a lack of diversity within Canadian police services. Would you uh, please speak to that in, in an overview sense? Well, I'm aware of the report. I, I'm not sure I completely agree with some of the findings or conclusions. I, I, I think just about every police, well, every police agency across this country um, make uh, a lot of effort to try and recruit from different ethnic groups, uh, uh, race-based groups, other groups uh, that exist in communities across this country, and will continue to do so. They do that in a manner of different ways, job fairs, they attend cultural events, uh, they're advertising in 
all manner of publications to try and recruit from different communities. But I think there are a number of factors that make that a huge challenge. First of all, policing might not be attractive uh, to certain um, cultures as a profession. A lot of people see it as a high-risk profession. It's not they're more inclined to encourage their kids to pursue um, work in other fields. And it's also a competitive job market out there for us, uh, for the kind of recruit that we're looking for. And a lot of people don't want to work, shift work, and be exposed to a lot of uh, very troubling and difficult uh, societal issues that they have to manage. Uh, so all of that combined um, makes this uh, a real challenge. Is there then more of more difficulty now than if you were to go back 10, 20 years in policing? Is there more difficulty attracting young people to to the police service and for them to m- commit to making it a career? Just generically, is it more difficult? Very much so. I, I think a lot of that is uh, generational. Um, we know with our uh, younger kids nowadays, they're less likely to be committed to one career over their lifetime. I think uh, the fact that working as a police officer means you're working in a fishbowl where every decision you make is uh, examined and re-examined again and again with the benefit of hindsight uh, by all kinds of people that want to armchair quarterback your decisions. I think uh, with the standards now uh, that we've established for people to get into policing, th- those kind of people have other options, and they don't. those other options include the same level or of income or higher without having to work shift work, without having to work weekends, without having to work family, uh, miss family events. So, so it's very challenging. I've spoken to some police officers who've been cops for quite a while, but they still have a number of years to go until they reach the maximum uh, pension benefit time for retirement. And they're, st- they're thinking about not completing their full required time period. Is that something that is being uh, encountered across the country? Is it is it a localized issue? Is it not much of an issue? How do you speak to that? No, that, that's very much an issue. We're seeing, uh, I mean, realistically, in policing, we're, st- we're still experiencing lower attrition rates than you might see in other sectors, but those attrition rates are, are climbing up. They're increasing because we are seeing... Uh, uh, our younger members, particularly who are starting a career in policing, they work in policing for five, maybe ten years, and then they find other opportunities. They take those that training and the skills that they've developed as a police officer, and they bring them into the private sector or or just other op- opportunities. Because the, another key difference is, I think you know, my generation of police officers were very committed to their work. Uh, it was all about work. They're prepared to. Uh, set aside other interests uh, in the pursuit of their uh, professional career. Uh, what we see now with the new generation of police officers, they're, they're looking for better work-life balance. Uh, family's more important. Their own uh, social activities or other interests are more important, and they want some balance in their lives, and often they don't find that in policing. Let me come back to the diversity issue. Is it an issue among police officers? Uh, are you aware that in that in that in any communities, any police services across Canada, that uh, a diversity or lack of diversity is a problem among officers themselves? No, I I don't see it as a problem within the profession among officers. Uh, our police officers across this country embrace diversity. They're actively engaged in recruiting new people into the organization. I think the important thing when it comes to diversity is. 
uh, police services across the country need to make sure they're engaged with uh, different cultures and uh, ethnicities that exist within a community, and, and, and it's that community engagement that will ensure that a police service is successful. If you don't have that, then, of course, there are going to be challenges. And I think the engagement piece can, can happen regardless of whether we're hitting a certain percentage when it comes to uh, representing the different races of, and ethnicities that exist in our communities. So your feeling is, as the president of the Canadian Police Association, if I understand it correctly, that it's not necessary to have a police service that exactly mirrors, or pretty close to exactly, mirrors the diversity makeup of a community in order to successfully and positively uh, carry out policing responsibilities. I think diversity is critically important. I think engagement is as important or more important, and I think that police agencies in Canada embrace diversity and are pursuing it, but I don't think we should get hung up on a specific percentage or uh, a number and and judge success or failure based only on, on a percentage. Toughest job in society, policing. Thank you for the time, Tom. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Tom Stamatakis is the president of the Canadian Police Association. You can uh, find the information on the report about Diversity in the police services in communities across this country. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, this was not on my program schedule. I had something else planned for the remainder of this hour. But I thought about Allison Azar. I thought about Allison After the program yesterday, I thought about her last night, thought about her four children. I read so many of your tweets, and I know so many of you are engaged and involved and and, and are trying to push the government to take action to do what it's supposed to do, and that is protect Canadians. And particularly when the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, stands with the mother of four abducted Canadian kids, which he did two and a half months ago, as Allison explained to us, put put his arms around her, the mother of the four abducted kids, and commits to finding them, doing whatever he can to reunite mom and the four children. And as Allison told us, Yesterday and previously on this program, Mr. Trudeau said, The file stays on my desk until this is resolved. So the RCMP issued a Canada-wide arrest warrant for the father of the four kids, Sarah Nazar, Dr. Sarah Nazar, came to Canada as a refugee became a physician, posed with uh, Prime Minister Harper and with the then-immigration minister, Jason Kenney. But at the same time, CSIS was concerned about Aaron Azar and his connections. And the marriage between Alison Azar and Sarah Azar ended, and he had visitation rights and You know how it goes. Dr. Azar, just over a year ago, requested that he could take the children to Europe 
to Germany for a vacation. I'm just telling you what Allison told us. And Allison didn't like that idea very much, but he was granted permission, and off they went. And instead of coming back to Canada, Aaron Azar and the four children wound up on the Iraq-Iran border. So clearly he was in noncompliance with the regulations and the law that he was required to observe and, and respond to. And that's when the RCMP issued the Canada-wide arrest warrant. And then Interpol is involved, and they issue what essentially is a red alert. And I'm just repeating what Allison told us. And the Iranians get in touch with, uh, with the Canadian government. They say, we've got him. What do you want us to do? This is Iran. Not exactly the most communicative and friendly government dealing with Western nations, but it was Interpol. What do you want us to do? So the Prime Minister of Canada would have had the opportunity through his Global Affairs Department, used to be Foreign Affairs, but you can't say foreign anymore. It's too politically incorrect. Through his Global Affairs Department, the Prime Minister would have, you know, just, here's the file, it's on my desk, it's where I said it would be until it's resolved. Resolve it, get these kids back, take those kids away. No, no. And if I'm getting anything of this, anything wrong here, there's a member of parliament who wants to challenge what I'm saying, or, you know, the minister of global affairs, or the prime minister. I'm right at the other end of AAA-225-8255, not hard to find. AAA-225-8255. What Allison told us is the federal government did not respond. Worse than that. They essentially said they wouldn't gonna, weren't going to do anything. And they weren't going to do anything, the Allison told us, because what, they, what she was told, uh, the Fed said, well, <clears throat> if, we, uh, if we intercede here, and then bad things could happen to Dr. Azar. So those four children, who Justin Trudeau promised <laughs> to get back to Canada, it's on his desk, the file's on my desk, Allison, I'm with you. Let me hug you and tell you that I'm a dad and I'm with you and I will help you. He goes on vacation with his family, of course. I don't resent the man a holiday. He deserves it. If you want to go bare-chested and crash a wedding, hey, that's fine. No problem. But the kids are Canadian children, Mr. Trudeau. I don't know if you have an attention span issue, but you said to Alison Hazard that you would get her kids back. You had the chance. It was right there in front of you and your government, and you did nothing. Have a listen to what Alison said when I said to her, if you, could, if you were standing in front of Justin Trudeau right now, what would you say to him? Here's what she said. Prime Minister, when I met you two and a half months ago, you made me a promise. Not only have you not lived up to that promise, I'm now of the opinion that you weren't telling me the truth. If you are willing to sacrifice my children 
in the interest of political calculus, I need you to be honest. I need you to have the fortitude to look me in the eye and tell me that you're sorry, but that you're not ready for the kind of leadership required to bring four innocent kids home. At least you telling me the truth, even if it's something that I don't want to hear and Canadians don't want to hear, that would be the honorable thing to do. I will find a way to get my children home. It may be in spite of you. I am not afraid of you. I am not afraid of your officials. You owe me the truth, and you owe Canada the truth. Alison Azar yesterday on this program. She doesn't know. I'm doing this segment now. She doesn't know. I didn't tell her. I sent her an email maybe 20 minutes ago, and I, I just said, Alison, I'm going to talk about you and the kids. And if you want to call in, here's the number. It just bothers me so much. These are four Canadian children. They haven't seen their mother for a year. Their father took them illegally. What the hell were they thinking, letting him take them out of the country when he was being watched and worried about by CSIS? Who was doing the thinking in, in that regard? And then the prime minister makes a promise to the four kids' moms. Oh, these four, these, yeah, these four kids' mom. I'm just, I'm just so angry. I'll get them back for you. You know, being prime minister is a very responsible job, and you have a lot of power. You have a lot of power. You pick up the phone as prime minister. People answer at the other end. And if Mr. Trudeau really intended to get these Canadian kids back, he had the opportunity, and I explained it to you. But instead, his officials did nothing. They did worse than nothing. And then when Allison talked to me and talked to some other media, they criticized her. They called her and told her, what are you doing talking to media? Don't talk to media. Why don't they want her to talk to media? Exactly the reason that I'm doing right now. They don't want this to happen. They don't want you to know. They don't want you to react. They don't want you to say, hey, Justin, you made a promise. Hey, Justin, you made a promise. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So on uh, the 8th of November, Americans will go to the polls. They'll go to and uh, vote for their next president. Will it be Hillary Clinton, who is leading in the polls now, or will it be Donald Trump, who uh, people seem to be trying to get under control again? That'll probably last for a couple of days. But I uh, have a sense there's a method behind Trump's madness. But if you believe pundits, if you believe current polling, mainstream media, wailing Republican Party leaders, Hillary Clinton's going to stomp Donald Trump under 18-inch stiletto heels. But according to Professor Helmut Norpoth, the director of undergraduate studies and political science at Stony Brook University, New York State, Donald Trump has an 87% chance of convincingly beating Hillary Clinton in the election. And Professor Norpoth joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Corvus Red Radio Network. Professor Norpoth, 87%, is that almost a, 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 is that a guarantee? (laughs) 
Well, good morning, Bob. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. I know it, it does sound about as uh, outlandish uh, as uh, anything that, that the candidate himself is saying, and uh, I mean, the more so than uh, as you look at some of the polls. And I, I, I fully realize that, that it just does, uh, seems to be uh, uh, sort of a little, uh, little bizarre, I have to admit that. But uh, I, I still believe that uh, this is an election for, let's say, the Republican candidate to lose. And the reason I'm saying that is that if you look over the last uh, 200 years, the electoral pendulum in American elections uh, swings pretty regularly, and it is poised to, to swing uh, to the Republicans in 2016. Uh, just over the last 60 years, there's only been one election in which the party in the White House has been able to hold on for a third term, and that was in 1988. So it's it's uh, it's pretty unusual. And uh, and on top of that, uh, in presidential primaries, which uh, the the the, uh, the uh, U.S. has had sort of had uh, for about 100 years, uh, the uh, the candidate who does sort of better in primaries, who wins more primaries than the other one, uh, 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 tends to win. So Donald Trump has done that. Uh, you can see that in the in the first two. And this this is why I've been making this forecast sort of sort of quite quite a while ago. Uh, he won New Hampshire and South Carolina, and Hillary lost New Hampshire and then uh, won. So based on based on that alone, my my forecast formula uh, predicts that uh, Donald Trump will defeat Hillary, not not by a, a very big margin, but but there's a certainty that uh, is about 87 percent. So, uh, so the formula says that the mm-hmm. the candidate who wins more primaries than the other is in an mm-hmm. advantageous position, plus. The uh, yes. the calendar swinging, uh, according to your formula, the calendar has swung to the Republicans. It wouldn't then matter whether it was Donald right. Trump or or uh, Jeb Bush who was uh, well, the it GOP candidate. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, the more we see of the candidate, uh, it, uh, it 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 uh, it does seem to matter. And Donald Trump is a very, I think, unique candidate. I think everybody agrees about that. I well, mean, that's that one word that's been used like 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 that ever. So. There's something, and I think there's something about Donald Trump that helped him win the Republican nomination that may be his downfall in the general. So that 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 is certainly a possibility that I have to reckon with increasingly. But your 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 formula, the primary model, your formula says the Republicans will win or have an excellent chance of winning a better chance than, than the, the the Democrats in November of right. this year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and you've I, been I correct you've been correct for the last 20 years is it? Well, I yeah, I started using sort of a, a version of this model uh, beginning in 1996 and it has predicted the, the winner of the popular vote in in all of these five elections and uh, and going back in, in history and sort of uh, seeing how the model would have worked in, in elections before it uh, it it's every one of them except 1960. So I, I do have a I do have a lot of confidence in, in the model, and uh, I I also would would point out that the uh, the Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton certainly has uh, very uh, uh, strong negatives, and uh, we've never seen that before. That 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 uh, the candidate of the sort of White House party that is trying to succeed uh, a, a a president uh, has such 
uh, high negatives, and they're, they're about the same as, as Donald Trump's, a little, maybe a little, little less so. So that certainly indicates that, that, that the Republican Party as a party would have a, a good chance of, of doing that. So the question is, can, can Donald Trump get his act together? Can he, well, can he avoid all But, but as I understand uh, it, Professor Norpov, mm-hmm. your formula... Yeah. Takes the, does it take the variables out of it? Is it just the time for the Republicans? Because if I'm going to put some money on this election, yeah, if I had a, right. let's say I had $1,000 to bet, and I've got yeah. the wagering websites uh, telling me that Hillary Clinton, there's right. one site predicted, is giving Clinton a 66% chance of winning. If I say, hold on, those odds are pretty good. Professor Norpoth yeah. says Trump has an 87% chance of winning. I'll put my $1,000 on Donald Trump on November the 9th. Am I counting my money? Well, you certainly do. You certainly win win a lot more money if you do that, and Donald Trump wins. Then, if you put it on Hillary, yeah, I know, but can I, I trust mean, your you're formula? You're only making net profit of about I don't know thirty cents per dollar that you put yeah. in. So, uh, I would say, uh, I mean, I've done it. I, I've 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 gone into uh, uh, one of these markets, and I have uh, gone in. So I put my money where my mouth is uh, pretty early. So I'm okay. I'm, uh, I'm I'm confident in. in I mean, I've, I mean, I've okay. Professor Northpath, I thank you for the time. We'll see what happens. We'll see if your formula holds true on the north uh, on the uh, 8th of November. It's uh, it's still three months, so thank you very much for having me. Thank you for the time. Bye-bye. Political science professor Helmut Norpoth. 87% chance. Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States. The current polling says, I think so. And the wagering sites, at least one of them, says a 66% chance Hillary Clinton's going to win. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So I went back to uh, March of this year when uh, all hell was breaking loose in the Republican primaries. Uh, Jeb Bush was still engaged at that time. And I'm just looking for the actual precise date here. It was the uh, 2nd of March, 2nd of March, that I read this one email. So I thought, well, let's see if, 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 first of all, if these emails still resonate with our callers, if they still believe that Trump is going to be the president of the United States and should be, or if some of them have changed their minds, some of them are Trump supporters or were and have changed their minds. And what about the women who wrote the emails? Well, I had the email address of one of them, and her name is Karen, and here's what I wrote partly. I, Karen, on March 19 of this year, you sent an email in which you wrote you support Uh, Donald Trump for President of the United States. This weekend, I'm going to be asking callers who supported Donald Trump during the primaries if they remain Trump supporters, and that's what I'm asking you. Do you remain a supporter of Mr. Trump? And whether you do, or if you've changed your opinion of him, would you mind sharing your view now with me in another email, which I will read on air? And so Karen did that. So I'm going to read you right now what she sent me in March. Actually, this was... um, it was February that I got this one. Um, I know it was March. It doesn't matter. And here's the one, the first one I received. And then I'll read you the one that she sent two days ago uh, from March. I'm a 52-year-old woman with two master's degrees, born and raised in Alberta, for context. Thank you for your voice of reason, Roy. Trump, if you actually listen to his words is the voice of reason and intelligence. He's out playing the players, and it shows the lack of media objectivity. He is honest and independent. 
His approach is often brash, but I don't find him offensive. I find him refreshing and the beacon of hope for all of North America. By the way, why do we criticize a sucker punch and not a verb abuse? Why is physical bullying worse than verbal? They inflict the same damage. And Kevin O'Leary, yes, please. All right. So there's Karen's email from March. Here's the one I got a couple of days ago. Same person after everything that's happened. Hi, Roy. I'd be happy to share my sentiments about Trump. In fact, I just spent time in northern Washington and took every opportunity to ask the locals their thoughts. It seems that the majority of people I talk to support Trump, but quietly and almost with embarrassment. I continue to be a Trump fan. With Trump, the media and the general public get stuck on his delivery and often miss the message. His sarcasm and flippancy are so often taken literally. His policy statements and positions are what Americans should be thinking about. Immigration. I do not for a moment believe that Trump is a racist. He is stating what needs to be said. Of course, illegal immigration from Mexico needs to be stopped. Because of Trump, this is now a recognized issue. As well, holding back on Muslim immigrants is simply prudent. Imagine being in the position of France or Germany. Not all Muslims are bad, but all these terrorists are Muslim. Read Amanda Lindhout's biography of her Islamist captors. During the time she was repeatedly raped and beaten, one of her captors was accepted on a study visa to an American university. Trade. Although Canada may not benefit from renegotiating NAFTA, especially with a drama teacher at our helm, U.S. employment is suffering from low production costs in Mexico. Taxes? He's right. That U.S. corporate taxes are too high, and increasing minimum wage is not the approach to increasing employment. Alberta is a case in point. Education. The U.S. education system does need an overhaul. It is currently elitists. Trump's son is all over this. Environment. The environmental movement has become empowered despite being unscientific, unreasonable, misguided, and driven by self-motivated capitalists who stand to benefit. Trump is too smart to fall into the media circus here, e.g. his positions to support fracking. Again, not good for Canada, since it will decrease our demand for our oil, but smart for the U.S. Trump is unpolished, brash, and full of ego, but he's usually right, and it's about time someone was at the helm who wasn't owned, e.g. Obama. Warren Buffett played him beautifully because Obama stopped the XL pipeline. His friend Buffett benefited from increased railway transport and his oil car production soared to 6,000 cars per year. Karen continues, I don't like the fact that Trump has had three wives. I don't like his hair or his orange skin. I think his personal attacks are cheap and often nasty, but I don't for a minute believe he's anti-women or anti-gay. I think he's just pro-hard-working Americans. He has a solid, big-picture map, even if the tactical details are still weak. He's smart enough to get the right team, and I trust that he would lose this if he wins. I guess the simplest for me is to look at Trump's children, and you can judge who this man is. They're educated, well-spoken, intelligent, and obviously love their country and support their father. The rest is just noise. Thanks, Roy. So that's from Karen. Trump supporter in March. Stronger Trump supporter now. Here's the other email. Now, this was sent to someone I uh, know a little bit. And uh, this is his cousin, who lives in the United States, 
who wrote this email. Her name is Julie. And in March, she wrote, it's a circus. In fact, it's a three-ring circus. We have Donald Trump in the main ring. He's ready to whip this country back into shape. In the left ring, we have Bernie and Hillary. Bernie's spouting about all the free stuff he'll make available to everyone. Hillary's just spouting. Then we have Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and Jeb Bush in the right wing. We've been watching this circus too long. What a joke the current administration is. He has divided the country. We can't wait for the current clown in office to be gone. Seriously, our country's a mess. The politicians are not doing me any favors. I personally felt the impact of the current Democratic government. My husband was a systems analyst. He was laid off three years ago. He cannot find a job. My son graduated from college two years ago. The only job he has is teaching karate. Our household income has been cut in half. I'm sick of paying taxes into a system that squanders my money. The Democrats do not have the same beliefs that I have. I'm sick of the tide of illegal immigrants flooding our country, taking jobs, not speaking our language, and sucking benefits out of the system. Did you realize if you come here, you can get free housing, free cell phones, free health care, free food, and probably a whole lot of other benefits I don't know of. This is my tax money funding them. I'm sick and tired of it. I'm tired of political correctness. I'm tired of the left shouting down religion. I believe in God, not Allah. Should our police officers be allowed to racially profile to find criminals? Damn straight they should. I want someone in office who will bring the United States back to a country that we can be proud of. I need a change. I need a strong president. The Democrats are not going to help mainstream America. I need someone like Trump. I need someone to come in and kick ass. If Trump is only half the man Ronald Reagan was, the U.S. may be able to recover. I shudder thinking of another Democrat in power. And that was Julie in March, an American woman voter. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Does Donald Trump deserve to be president of the United States? Or does Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, deserve to be president of the United States? And on the line to get us started is uh, Toronto City Councillor Doug Ford. Mr. Ford, how are you, sir? I'm doing great today, Roy. Love listening to you and uh, great topic. Well, thank you for listening, Doug. I know you listen quite regularly, and I appreciate that. And uh, congratulations on continuing the the Ford presence at City Hall. Yeah, no, that's great. Michael did really well, and uh, he's going to continue making sure he holds uh, all these politicians to account. That's right. You've got to bring matches and hold their feet to the fire. And they don't, I'll tell you one thing. They don't like it, Roy. They don't like it in the U.S., and they don't like it here in Canada at all three levels, all three parties. And, you know, that, that's what Donald Trump's doing. He's the anti-establishment, anti-Washington, and it's, it's no more backroom deals, pork barrel funding, that uh, not only down in the U.S., but we see it here in uh, Canada as well. So I called it uh, right from the beginning when he was in the nomination with, I think, 12 or 13 other candidates. I, I, could, I could feel the pulse. We have a facility in Chicago and New Jersey, and uh, I go down there frequently, and I could feel the pulse of the people down there. They were frustrated uh, with the, the, you know, the typical uh, uh, government that's been in power for, for years. And that doesn't matter if it's the Republicans under the Bush or, or the Clintons. Uh, you, you see this going right across 
the world, no matter if it's the, the vote in UK. Well, yeah, was, Doug, uh, Doug, Doug, I've been yeah. saying I've been saying for a couple of years now, the populist movement is it's not on its way. It's here. And you saw it in Brexit. But when you look at when you look at Donald Trump and you see what he's what he's done since he's become the official nominee for the party. This is not the best metaphor in the world concerning Dominic use Donald Trump. But doesn't he have a, a habit of setting his own hair on fire? You know, he, he does. He's not uh, a polished uh, politician. Uh, a lot of uh, what he says is uh, tongue-in-cheek. But uh, I still trust Donald Trump with my tax dollars in the U.S. than I would Hillary Clinton. So you're, you, you, you have business investment in the United States. You're more comfortable with your investment in the U.S., under the presidency of Donald Trump than under the stewardship of Hillary Clinton. There's no doubt. And, uh, you know, anyone who wants to give Hillary Clinton their money to invest or give it to Donald Trump, I'll give it to Donald Trump any day. Doug, and he doesn't have to be doing this. He's, he's a populist. Yeah, There's a populist true. movement. And uh, he's, he's going to win this at the end of the day. Right. He doesn't have to do it. He's at least the minimum he's got, according to Forbes, I think, is $4 billion. And he says it's more than $10 billion. Whatever, he's got his, his private airplane is a, is a Boeing 757, so mm-hmm. what are you going to do? Doug, thank you for the call. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Roy. All the best. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.